Hello and welcome to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. I'm Kelly McKercher. I'm a designer, a writer, and I use them, they pronouns. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands in which I'm recording this podcast, the Wongal and Gadigal people of the Ori Nation, as well as all nations across Australia. This series aims to stretch our view of human-centered design through talking with practitioners who are working beyond the double diamond, who are pushing practice. Today we're joined by community design leader Morgan Lee Cataldo, professor of design Tad Hirsch, and social worker turned designer Rachel Dekas. We start our conversation in Tad's excellent paper, Practicing Without a License, Design Research as Psychotherapy. We explore the similarities between design research, particularly semi-structured interviewing, and psychotherapy. We look at the dark side of rapport, the differences in transactional research versus community-led, and the increasingly popular topic of what being trauma-informed might actually mean. It's a big, exploratory conversation with a lot to think about. We'll follow it up with another conversation next year. Welcome, Tad, Rachel, and Morgan to the show. Um, Let's start off and hear a little bit about each of our positions, our place, and our pronouns. So I am Morgan Cataldo. My pronouns are she, her. Um, I'm here on Wurundjeri land in Nam or Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, so-called Australia. Um, my work is as a design practitioner in participation and I run my own consulting business and I'm also working at Berry Street, which is a child and family services organisation here in Victoria and I head up um, the youth engagement portfolio here. So that's a little bit about me. Tad. Hi, I'm Tad Hirsch, uh, he, him pronouns. I'm speaking to you from Boston, Massachusetts in the United States, which are the ancestral and unceded lands of the Massachusetts peoples. Um, I am professor of design at Northeastern University, and I'm also um, chief design officer of a company called Empathic, which is a technology company that is trying to promote more empathic uh, communications between people. And Rachel. Hi, um, my name is Rachel Dekas, uh, she, her. I am located in Urbana, Illinois, about two hours south of Chicago, which is uh, the unceded and ancestral lands of the Peoria, the Kickapoo, and the Miami. So I am a a clinical social worker and design researcher. Um, I also have my own uh, practice where I do a lot of focus on trauma-informed and trauma-responsive design with um, individuals and teams. And, uh, and I also work uh, part-time with a studio in Chicago called Shy by Design, where a lot of the work is focused on this combination of being trauma-informed, uh, co-design, and having, having an anti-racist uh, practice. So um, those, that's what is uh, really keeping me pretty busy these days. Fantastic. And as we travel through the conversation today, uh, we're all based at home. So there may be cats, dogs, in my instance, crows outside the window. So 
one of the threads that's holding this particular conversation together uh, is a paper that you wrote, Tad, um, that's been quite evocative, quite interesting, I think, for all of us, titled Practicing Without a Licence, Design Research as Psychotherapy. And we'll link to that paper in the show notes, Tad, so that folks have the opportunity to read that, to reflect on that. Um, but I wonder if you could kick us off telling us about about that paper, what it is and why you wrote it. The paper really is sort of a almost a meditation on um, the idea of uh, rapport, right? Um, and by rapport, what I'm referring to is um, the kind of connection that can be created when doing design research and in particular when doing interviews, right? Um, rapport is a well-established idea in design. We talk about it as kind of like the the, the base requirement in order to have any kind of meaningful um, interview session, right? So by rapport, we simply mean some kind of almost emotional connection with the person we're talking to such that they feel positively inclined towards us and therefore want to divulge lots of information about their work practices or what have you. Um, this is generally described um, kind of in the commercial design world and in sort of like mainstream design as you know this really valuable asset that a uh, design researcher may uh, uh, discover that will allow them to kind of mine the people they're interrogating for lots of valuable insight. Um, and so what I was doing in this paper was trying to kind of look closely what's happening inside that moment, inside the moment where that that connection is formed um, and to think through it a little bit. Um, and so it begins by just describing rapport itself um, generally as, as this um, sense in which uh, the person that or people that we are talking to feel that um, the designer is um, interested in them, is positively oriented towards them, is not judgmental to them, and is listening to them. Um, and I was noticing and sort of drawing on um, prior work, both in psychotherapy and in feminist sociology, that that relationship is also the foundations of therapeutic relationships. Um, and so the reason that sometimes we have these experiences where it people we're interviewing described feeling like feeling really good about a conversation in an interview, um, even sometimes using therapy-like language to describe how they feel about sharing their lives with us. Um, it's, it's not an accident, right? It's, it's something we're actually, as designers and researchers, are actively trying to create and cultivate. Um, and, you know, and, and the positives of this are that, you know, we get lots of good information, which is great. Um, and, you know, maybe... Uh, the person we're speaking with has a generally a positive experience and feels good about it. And that's, that's great too. Um, but what I wanted to do was to sort of think through kind of what some of the knock-on implications might be of creating a sort of quasi therapeutic experience as our design research. Um, and in particular, what that means when we're um, talking with, with people who may have experienced trauma um, in in one way or another, um, and and then thinking through what some of the consequences might be, um, intentional or not, of 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 having these kinds of engagements. You know, everything from um, 
prompting people to divulge more than they maybe wanted to, um, which I think many of us feel have had experience of that happening in interviews. Um, potential to re-traumatize um, or certainly to raise um, very difficult reflections um, and memories in people we're talking to. Um, so recognizing that you know there are some risks here um, to the, the our informants and to the our participants in our in our design activities, um, and then finally taking from there thinking through well what what does this actually mean for us? What are some of our um, responsibilities or responses at least if we recognize that that there is this risk and that we have some um, hand in in creating it, um, and so then making a few suggestions ultimately suggesting um, something like a trauma-informed research practice that would include a number of different things, but some of them might be um, different approaches to how we do design education and design pedagogy to um, raise the, the possibilities um, and to sensitize designers both to the risks that they may be um, entering into and also to help understand how one might respond. Um, to help designers recognize when that line is being crossed, perhaps, or when there is an uh, unintentional oversharing, or to recognize when someone might be having a trauma-based reaction to a conversation, um, suggesting appropriate responses when that does occur, um, and also trying to draw limits on you know what what is appropriate for you know like untrained. <laughs> Uh, designers who suddenly find themselves having very difficult conversations that they might not be prepared to really have. Um, and then finally, really trying to suggest that the whole way that we do things like informed consent um, just that doesn't really work. Um, the notion that, you know, you can start a conversation by saying, oh, is it okay if we have this conversation? And, uh, and that's all you need to do. Um, because, you know, in, in every interaction we have with, with others, there's always the potential for um, the unanticipated to occur. And so we need to be much more responsive. And, and again, this is borrowing pretty closely from sort of feminist theory on, on what consent means and how, how it might be considered as an mm -hmm. ongoing relationship rather than a kind of like check the box and move on sort of thing. So that's, you know, probably too long an overview of what was probably too long a paper in the first place. But, um, but that was, those are some of the touch points I think that I tried to get at. I think that was really useful, Ted, and um, so useful to hear your perspective on the paper. Um, and I wonder, Morgan, if we were to lift up some of those themes around trauma-informed, trauma-responsive, sort of rethinking consent, um, what's coming up for you? Thanks, Ka. Um, yeah, so a few things. That was actually really helpful, Ted, to hear from your perspective, what the paper is about, it's always different reading it with an interpretation versus hearing it from the author. So that was really good. I have a few things um, and I reckon I'll just read a couple of them out to help hopefully stimulate some conversation just from the thoughts that came as I was reading it, but also as I've been listening um, to what you were saying, Tad, and from my perspective. So the first thing I was thinking about is the, the sort of power dynamic between either the design researcher or the designer and the participant. So I'm thinking about, you know, is it a researcher with or without a lived experience? Is it a, what we call a peer researcher, which is someone with a similar lived experience? Or is it a peer worker, um, which is someone working in community with these affected communities? So 
you know, I'm thinking about how good rapport and good feelings um, come through building strong relationships, just essentially. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, for those of us working in the field with a lift experience, and when I'm saying a lift experience, I mean a lift experience of some sort of um, historical exclusion or marginalisation of a social issue. Um, there's often a really deep sense of connection that comes through um, kind of shared survival and a shared knowing of experience. So I think, of course, I agree in that I think it's important to be conscious of, of safety and what could be happening in a trauma space with the person. But um, how do we do this in a way that doesn't sterilise a really organic process um, that's often quite healing and and really um, recovery oriented for those of us who identify as survivors in the community. So that's the first thing. Um, the second is, and, and sort of really relating to this, how do we honour uh, the wisdom and expertise of other ways of knowing, being and doing? Um, so that's really similar to what I was saying before. So because there are many people with a lived experience who are um, generally really locked out of the education system and you know professionalised and formal training institutions, they're probably practicing without a license already, um, but also having really exceptional um, impact in their communities because they know what's going on in their communities and they need to sort of um, just meet the problems so they can survive. So for me, um, these are the sorts of people who aren't practicing to uphold institutional power. Um, they're working to serve communities and, and um, disrupt established power structures. So whenever I think about the entry of training and education in organic sort of spaces like that, I think, how can we do that in a way that meets people where they're at already in community or meets people where they're at already working rather than saying, you know, as white dominated, predominantly middle-class industry, we're saying that this should be the standard and we're going to sort of put that down as what we think needs to be the standard. Um, I think that, you know, and I definitely, you're not saying this at all, Tad, but I think when we think about, you know, the therapeutic benefit to design research or co-design processes, I think there's the process and then there's just the relationship. And when you're in good relationship, good feelings come from that and potentially that could affect on some level. So even when folks aren't trained, um, a process held really well, may support people with their recovery and their healing. Um, and I don't know if we should shy away from that. I think it's more about becoming more aware of what's happening in the process so we know how to hold the space. Um, and also so we know what training could support people to do that better. And finally is around trauma-informed practice, which um, I'm a huge advocate for, but also very conscious that a lot of the history of trauma-informed practice is actually quite oppressive to lots of marginalised communities because it's um, historically focused on the individual trauma uh, rather than systemic trauma, um, which is where I really love the reframing around healing-centred engagement, which is something that Sean Jinwright has brought in around this. So I just, yeah, there's quite a lot happening in my mind, as you can probably hear, but um, how do we hold that kind of typical oppressive trauma-informed standardised approach but also hear um, and really honour the lived wisdom in community. And they may not know what they're doing. They're just working intuitively. So kind of both of those things. Mm. Um, thanks, K.A. Yeah. It strikes me, Morgan, as you're speaking, that you're painting a bit of a difference for us and perhaps what we might think about as fairly transactional design yeah. research where we pop into people's lives for yes. 
an hour or two <laughs> um, versus something that's maybe a bit more about being in community with each other yeah. and having sort of conversations that unfold and deepen over time. Over time. And, yeah. you know, it strikes me that we're also seeing quite a difference in holding up this kind of authoritarian type of design research where the designer pops in versus mm. maybe something, as you mentioned, like community-led or peer-to-peer research mm. in which we're connecting through our own natural networks, which mm. perhaps raises a whole set of new <laughs> ethical questions and questions about practice. Um, should we sort of locate that asking and questioning and exploring in community as opposed to a stranger or an outsider mm. coming into. Mm. Um, Rachel, I'm curious, you know, we're increasingly using this language of, of trauma-aware or trauma-informed, um, and I'm not sure for most of us who have a more traditional design training that any of us really know what that means, and it feels like we've sort of stumbled into <laughs> the territory of others um, and potentially folks like yourself who have a sort of perhaps a deeper training in some of these ideas and practices. I wonder if you could paint a picture for us around this idea of trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive research. Hmm. This is a this is a good question, and it's something that I I think about and make some kind of a a mark on it, if you will, like every every day. Um, and I think just hearing hearing what you just shared, Morgan, really it strikes me because I on a lot of different levels because it um, a few things were definitely coming up, and and one one just right you know, right off the top is this, I think this overemphasis on, on just even the word trauma. Um, it, it has, it can have such a, a, a sadness attributed to it and also a confusion at the same time. And, uh, I, I really do think that trauma in the grand scheme of that word is, is deeply personal and, and is really, open to multiple interpretations and in a lot of different meetings. Um, Even for me as a, as a social worker. um, And when I got my MSW, you know, back in the late 2000s, 2008, 2010, you know, I, we weren't even talking about this. So even in a, even in a clinical social work program um, here in the U S there was little to no mention of trauma informed practices, trauma informed care. And, you know, the work was, was even early on, um, in some of its development anyway, but I think even just this modern day, uh, awareness of, of trauma, so much of it is, has been attributed at least in the U S and, and it has had these reverberations around the world of, being attached to PTSD, uh, military service, um, ex- extreme conflicts that have uh, many other systemic integrations built into that. A lot of a lot of power. So there's a lot of power in trauma, I think, and I think there's a there's an element of that that I think is definitely missing out of a lot of the conversation around it. And just how we talk about the power, the power over that designers often uh, have or can have. Uh, sometimes we don't even we aren't even aware of the power that we might have or that we can bring into that um, into the design research process. 
Um, and sometimes we're very acutely aware of that power that we have, and we and we utilize that for uh, you know more manipulative ways of of doing the work. Um, you know, I there's something that there's something that you said, Morgan, that I don't I don't want to I don't want to forget, and I and I wrote it down here because it's been it comes up in social work practice and humanistic social work practices, um, and definitely in just some of my own you know, kind of a configuration of different learnings that, that I've been trying to expand beyond just the, um, you know, the, the older white male in the U.S. or even like Western Europe. Um, but there's this, there's, there is something within a lot of the trauma work. So I think this is true for us as designers who are wanting to build up an awareness around this and build up a sensitivity around this and make sure that we are integrating this um, at whatever pace is comfortable and makes sense, depending on what the work is that you're doing. Um, but I think we, I think we forget about our own intrinsic and innate qualities that we have of just knowing this. And I think that that is a really key piece that um, I think about. I don't talk about as as much in conversation. Um, but what are those? What are those? neuropathic reactions that we have to things. And, and sometimes they happen very, very quickly. Um, we might have emotions that can have reverberations that last for a long time. But, um, you know, some researchers say that uh, your average emotion doesn't last for longer than 90 seconds, but the, but the effect of that can last much longer. Um, and so I think about some of the, some of the, the scientific aspects of this, because I do think that uh, it can't all be dis disregarded, it is relevant to understanding how people function and how trauma does live in our body and not just in our head and, and as a cognitive or emotional thing, that it can have significant impact on, on us as designers and those we are designing with, for, and, and you know, and, and from. Um, but that, that sense of knowingness, I think that is a piece that, that Morgan really, you know, mentioned and, and I think is, celebrated much more often in community um, outside of this world of design. And I, I think that's something that we always learn much more from. I think that's something that for us as individuals wanting to explore some of these practices, how do we, how do we know what we know? Um, how do we understand what we are feeling and how we, we are reacting to things? Um, I, and I, I really think that I think in order to gain some kind of traction with building this, this sensitivity or this, uh, I like to call it a, a trauma humility or a trauma literacy, um, that you have, you have to know yourself, um, and you don't need to know every single bit and part and process all, you know, all, all the good and all the bad, um, all of the, you know, you know, not so good and, and not so bad. Uh, and, and you don't need to necessarily do that in, a, in a formal, therapeutic environment. But I do think that if you don't understand yourself and how you react to things, I think it's very difficult to, to be designing with or for others. I, I just, mm. I, I, I find that's where there's a real serious, um, like ethical tension there. Mm. Mm. And one of the things, Rachel, which came as a real shock and a really unpleasant shock to me was working on a project around domestic and family violence and having that bring up for me a whole bunch of repressed stuff 
and that was like a avalanche <laughs> in the middle of a project in which I was facilitating and I think that experience came from a real lack of knowing self and maybe even considering self in the work and maybe some of those more old school ideas like you mentioned in your paper, Tad, around this idea that the the researcher is completely separate to the person for whom they're in conversation or relationship with, um, which just seems like such a an outrageous idea that that could ever be so. Um and I wonder for you, Tad, if there's been particular moments in your career in which you've had a sense of being surprised by your own reaction to something or being surprised by someone else's reaction or, or where you had a sense of some of the problematic power differentials in your work. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, really interesting set of observations. You know, I, the first thing I, I feel I want to point out, because I was reflecting a lot on um, Morgan's uh, comments about kind of the, the, the uh, setting up this kind of opposition, right, between like sort of, you know, big D corporate design on the one hand and community design on the other. Um, first, first to say that that paper was written for a very particular audience of like, it was an HCI audience, right? So these are like engineers, commercial design. It's exactly the model you're, you're critiquing and you're exactly right to pick up on that. Um, so a lot of the assumptions that go into the paper, exactly the ones you're highlighting, which are like, well, of course we're designing for others <laughs> that are not us. Uh, um, but I, but I do think it's in, in my experience, I, I I'm a little bit hesitant to kind of fully sign on to the, the kind of strong binary there where we've got like on one hand purely corporate rework and on the other hand, purely community community work. And, um, similarly, I think um, while the audience for that paper were, as you intuited or mentioned, are you know fully accredited, like advanced degrees, all those things, um, the the notion of training I think is a broader idea. Um, and what I think is the case is that um, people who are practicing design. In, and intentionally, by which I mean simply they are describing what they are doing as design as opposed to just doing things, right? Generally have some kind of training and that training may have come through a, a large institution, may have come through uh, more of a mentoring relationship with another person or group of people, may have come through watching a lot of YouTube videos. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I think the the, in my in my kind of experience and understanding, you know, I think that um, the concerns about what we are bringing to an engagement, whether it's a commercial engagement with a client and a prospective, you know, consumer of a product, or whether it's an engagement with um, a friend, relative, neighbor, um, ally, or or uh, community member. Um, I think those those concerns are still present. Um, and I think that the sensitivities that Rachel's referring to, of, um, I mean, maybe I'm going to oversimplify what, what she was pointing at, but, but the notion of kind of being in tune enough with yourself uh, and with your own kind of um, history and perspective and emotional responses as they're happening as being a kind of prerequisite um, for kind of doing the work, right? Um, 
But what I don't think is that everyone just is good at that automatically, right? <laughs> um, and so the question for me becomes, okay, well, if we, if we don't assume that everyone just intuitively knows how to do these things and that some of us are probably a little bit more um, oriented, right, towards a kind of uh, um, authentic, empathic engagement with, with our interlocutors than others, then what, what do we do with, with everyone for whom that is a, a little more of a stretch, right? And so to me, that's a space worth considering, whether we're talking about university program, community center, <laughs> whatever it is, I, I think that's an important thing to, to consider. So long, long way of coming back to Kellyanne's uh, comment. Um, I mean, I certainly, so I, and I should also mention like, you know, most of my career has been spent doing uh, community-based work, participatory design work, activist design work. Um, and I certainly have had very strong emotional reactions during those engagements. Um, the, the ones that come kind of most immediately to mind, I think, were um, work I was doing um, with um, organization in Seattle, Washington, that was focused on uh, addiction and homelessness. Um, and in conversations about particularly addiction, um, uh, addiction to, is a, a story, right, that it's very close to home for me. Um, I've lost um, a number of very, very close um, friends to overdoses and to the ravages of addiction. Um, I mean, I, you know, we all have these stories, right? Um, but I absolutely have had the experience of, you know, having a conversation with someone about their, their experience and, you know, literally coming to tears during, during that discussion. And I think there's a, you know, there's a moment there where you kind of have to make a decision, like, what do you do with that? Right. And there's one school of thought, and I think, Rachel, you can probably attest to this, right? There's one school of thought that says, well, you got to shut that down right away because you're not supposed to be like <laughs> putting that on the person you're talking to. But, you know, there's a different approach, which is about, um, you know, acknowledging that and, 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 and making yourself vulnerable and open and sharing that. And, and that becomes a way of enhancing the relationship. Um, again, I would ask to what end, right? If the point of doing that is to, enhance the relationship for the next 20 minutes so that I can like get more from you. Like that doesn't feel right. But if my intention is to build a authentic relationship that may or may not extend beyond the scope of whatever this design activity is, whether the design activity itself is not meant to be bounded in, 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 in the ways that commercial projects often are, but are, meant to be more unbounded and ongoing in the ways that community engagements can be. Um, you know, I think there's something for authenticity uh, and an honoring of the, of the feelings um, and responses that we're having. Thank you, Ted, for, for responding, I think, to a potential unhelpful opposition <laughs> between things being sort of the commercial and the community. Um, and I think what we're increasingly seeing is a real blurring of some of those things and something I notice is a lot of folks from the commercial who are sort of very steeped in the commercial and the transactional and maybe whose educational background is one more of the creative and generative aspects of design perhaps 
more so than some of the um, theories and practices we might find in sort of social science coming into design. Um, And I wonder, Morgan, from your position, particularly in that sort of community setting, what you're seeing as some of those very commercially orientated designers come into or wish to come into uh, community spaces. Thanks, Ka. Um, yeah, agreeance with just about everything here. So I think it feels important to highlight, you know, when I'm talking, there can sometimes be this kind of over-romanticization, I think, of participatory design, community design, that somehow when you're working in community as someone with lived experience, you can't possibly do harm, which is extremely harmful in and of itself. So, yeah, I, I definitely, um, I'm not sort of trying to paint the brush of commercial designers bad community design is good. I suppose um, maybe to get a bit more nuanced about it, it's like the power over in more industrial design, I would say is greater than um, because they're often people researching or designing on behalf of communities they don't have any belonging to. Whereas when you're in a community designer, there is probably more um, a chance that you have a lived experience and you belong in some in some way, shape or form, which can sometimes make you too close as well. So I'm conscious of that as well. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the theme it's bringing me back to is um, I think what's always been frustrating in when working in community is there's this kind of sense of um, being degreed from a formal institution can mitigate harm. And, you know, what's really hard is, as being a person that's been a service user of organisations and, as you both probably know, um, so many people who have experienced um, historical exclusion have been harmed by the very people with degrees that tell them that they're then to do no harm. And so I agree that what's this kind of middle place that we need to come to because what it feels like to me what's missing on potentially both, um, not both sides, but everywhere really, is the... Um, the ability to critically self-reflect and to know self very deeply, um, but also um, analysis about power and how it shows up. Because even like if I reflect on myself as a community designer, I still hold a lot of power in that space and I have to be really conscious of it. So I'm not kind of projecting my own stuff onto people that I find a lot of um, connection with. And that takes a hell of a lot of inner self-reflection. I've done a a lot of training, Um, but I wouldn't say that all that training would be considered by the design field, the formal design field, as you know, probably, oh, that's a bit woo-woo, isn't it? Um, but that's the stuff that's giving me, I think, this real rigour around knowing self and when I'm in relationship with someone, um, like when you were talking about that story, Tad, about feeling very moved by story. You know, that's me in my work every day. And then part of my reflective practice is having that muscle that goes, okay, um, in this moment, I'm feeling, you know, a deep connection to this story potentially is bringing up stuff and activating stuff in myself. So um, how do I honour the relationship in a way that keeps this other person safe with me? Because it's not, it's definitely not always appropriate for me to just gush about, oh, I've had this experience as well, because you've got to keep it um, about the relationship and about what the intention is with the design work or the research work or something like that. Um so, yeah, it's just bringing up, I guess it's just deepening the conversation like KA. It's like we see in the community design field um, a lot of industrial designers come in and extract from community. That's 
not new news, you know. You kind of, it's swooping in and, hello, we're the saviors. We've got this great toolkit. We're going to extract all this stuff from you, make a hell of a lot of money from it, and then go on the conference circuit for the next two years about what we learned about you, um, which is just, you know, horrid. <laughs> so it's, yeah, for me, it really brings me back again to, critical self-reflection analysis about power and thinking about things like design justice, um, which I think we're all really aware of and the design justice principles and, and how can we learn from community designers and people with lived experience, but also um, what's that rigor that we need um, around self-reflection. So yeah, that's, that's where I'm sitting with it right now. Mm. I was just thinking Morgan, often when we're in the midst of things and when we're sort of deep inside of a project or a community or maybe multiple all at the same time um, it can almost feel luxurious to take the time away for that sort of reflection whilst we're doing the thing not just after we've finished doing the thing Um, and I'm noticing and, and I don't know if this is true for you too Tad and Rachel in design education there has been at least somewhat of a shift even if it's sort of symbolic towards self-imposition of the designer and even at the sort of undergraduate level having students have conversations about who they are in their work um, which is just scratching the surface Um, but hopefully the structures we then set up inside of organizations and as design leaders further nurture people to explore their position and their self and, and have these sort of reflective practices, not as a luxury or a nice to have, but a, an active and ongoing part of the work. Uh, may I respond real quick? I'm sorry. I just, it's such an important point and, uh, and you just articulated so well. And Morgan, I really appreciate the way that you brought it up and framed it. Um, and, you know, and I think your Morgan, your um, reflection on sort of the, what you call these woo-woo practices, right, that are, <laughs> you know, not honored by um, institutional design. Like that, I think that's exactly the point. And it speaks to the paucity of institutional design education, right? And and to me, like, again, you know, this, to this this notion of like, is this a binary or not? Like, you know, for me, the, the key thing about, or, or an important insight about, um, community-based design practice is not that it is this wholly separate sphere, but rather that it's a similar kind of activity, or at least there's shared um, resonances. And that what community-based practices do is they foreground a set of concerns or can foreground a set of concerns that are absolutely present in other parts of the design world. Um, And so, I think your your reflections on um, um, self-reflection and on critical examination of power dynamics is absolutely an essential aspect of any design endeavor, wherever it's happening. Um, and I think the fact that we don't generally do it in formal design education, you know, I mean, I, I agree with you, Kellyanne, like it's, it is happening, but kind of, at least in, in my experience, um, it's bracketed. It's a, uh, you know, like we'll, we'll do the ethics class, right? Or we'll like we'll have a seminar on like politics. <laughs> um, but that to me is, is, is different. And, and 
and not quite enough, right? To, to you know, to, to what I, I hear you pointing to, which is the need for a full engagement is these are core tenets of design practice. Like without this, you are probably not, you probably maybe shouldn't be <laughs> um, uh, practicing. And at the very least, you probably aren't doing it as well <laughs> as you mm. might be, or as thoughtfully, mm. right, um, as you might be. Mm. And I guess on that point of shouldn't, <laughs> something, you know, we hear a lot is metaphorically, maybe you shouldn't open the wound if you don't know how to stop the bleeding. And Rachel, I wonder, reflecting on perhaps what designers just shouldn't do if we can be that absolute about it. Hmm. Uh, where to where to start? Um, I would also say, you know, what are what are the things that that even social workers like shouldn't do or um, and sometimes can't do and can't do well. Um, I think when when we were talking about the the education piece, you know, I, I couldn't help but hear all of these elements about design education, you know, more formal but also informal design education and um, and and you know very quickly trying to discern like what are those parallels that are um, either really present in social work education, but also maybe uh, lacking or maybe uh, you know, certainly flawed in many different ways. And it makes me think about the, both the, the need for, you know, implicit, but also explicit uh, curriculum. So, I mean, there needs to be explicit curriculum on this. And I do think that because it doesn't um, at, at a, at a larger scale around the world exists, these conversations are happening in different pockets. Um, and I, I, I hear design leaders um, in education, educational settings, like struggling with this. They, they know it's something that needs to be included. They know it's something that they want to integrate. Um, I've even had some that have said, you know, I know we need to hire people who are not designers to be teaching in our programs. And so, so I, I, I don't doubt that there's a, a desire or a will, but I think how do you translate that um, idea to an actual action? I mean, it's it to me that's uh, I think that's where you have to have um, others who have maybe been on the periphery of design, but now are are much more immersed in it to to help shape and guide some of those conversations. Um, I think the you know for a number of years before I was you know, what I'm doing now, which is, you know, very much immersed in design. Um, I, I did feel like an outsider as a social worker who had these interests and kept seeing the similarities between the two disciplines, just very, very, you know, in a broad, uh, generalized way. And I, early on, I mean, I would find myself, so this is maybe like five, six, seven years ago, just, you know, wondering like, you know, why, why are social workers, um, you know, getting paid so little around the world and have significant training and expectations, licensure, continuing education, um, a, 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 an entrenched code of ethics that if we do not adhere to it, we are, we are reported, we lose our license, we lose our ability to even like, you know, generate an income. Um, so just on a, just on a, you know, professional, like air quote, professional side of things. And I, and I would find myself wondering, like, you know, 
and, and really realizing that social workers and designers, um, very broadly speaking, were working on the exact same issues, but from very different angles where social workers are often, um, you know, we're problem solving and, but we're looking at the person in the environment. We're trying to understand what is, uh, you know, even systematically, like what can we do to try to change things from a systemic um, perspective while keeping someone safe and uh, in ensuring that there's some um, element of just continuity of care. Um, and, you know, and then I would, I would hear of design-based projects where they're working on maybe a, a similar issue. So housing and homelessness is one um, child, what we call child welfare and foster care, um, which are, uh, you know, inaccurate terms and descriptions for those, but it's what commonly people know, uh, know and understand them as, um, and, and I would hear of, of design-based projects that were happening where they weren't including um, those with lived experience, for one, or they weren't including those who work really closely with those individuals with lived experience. And I could feel this, um, just this, I, I could feel both a, an opportunity to try to connect the two and just uh, educate, you know, uh, designers on the, just the different roles that different people have in some of these um, and some of in some of this work, and in, especially in some of these systems, and I think it's where you know it's been mentioned a couple of times, like you know just transactions versus like relational or that that building of rapport. Um, I think that's where it it really started to click back in maybe 2017 or 2018, when I was I was ob- observing someone talking about the design process and talking so much uh, of the, you know, the industry standard design process and, and this hyper-focus on the word empathy. And I could, I mean, my heart started racing, like my stomach started to get like really tight in knots. And it wasn't like, like, oh, I'm excited about this. I was like, oh, I'm feeling, I'm really having a visceral reaction to having a very clear-cut, discernible um, example right in front of my face of how this is um, exactly what Tad said in the paper, like extractive, manipulative, and uh, in, in causing uh, that a significant uh, you know, potential for causing far more harm. And it just made me, it almost, I, I was able to start drawing out, like, what are these things that we that should not be doing? Uh, what are these things that we're doing well? Um, but also, what are these things that we just absolutely should not be doing? And I think for me, you know, this is this is an ongoing, evolving tension that I have. Um, and I feel like this, just this work around, um, you know, being and becoming trauma informed, trauma sensitive. Um, I I like the phrase trauma responsive because I feel it is much more action oriented. It has uh, it has um, much more of a a flowing evolutionary like aspect to it. I'm just I'm just I'm drawn to that. Um, but I. But I really get concerned about um, that kind of work and the ability that that kind of work can happen at scale without any accountability. I mean, that that to me is just, it's so utterly shocking. Um, I still just, I can, I can feel my, you know, I can feel my, my heart racing just even thinking about that. And I, and I think that if we can talk about of potential harm, um, either known or unknown harm, accountability. How do we hold ourselves accountable to this practice? How do we hold each other accountable? Because that's built into social work practice. 
if I, if I, you know, part of my code of ethics is that if I have a colleague or a peer who is also a licensed clinical social worker, and then I know that they are potentially causing harm, or I suspect that, like, there's an obligation on me to do something about that. It's not like I don't just like sit back and, and wait for mm. someone else to do that. And so, uh, you know, those, those themes of responsibility are, are really, really strong. Um, and I, I, I just, I just want to keep contributing to that conversation to, to get people to, to keep, um, to one, like build an awareness if one doesn't exist, but also to really deepen the practice of that awareness, because I think that that is where, I think that's the sweet spot for some people um, is really taking it beyond, you know, I've learned this thing, therefore I don't need to learn anything else. It's like, no, now you need to actually integrate it into what you do, how you think about this work and change how you do this work. I mean, it's just, it's a, it's a non-negotiable. It, it, like once mm. you know better, you have to do better. And there's so many threads, I think there, Rachel, that are helpfully open <laughs> for us to sort of go on and explore more and unfortunately not in this conversation, <laughs> but hopefully in subsequent conversations. And I was reflecting on how in some ways, because design has been reasonably marginal in many organisations that are not design-led organisations, I wonder if there's been in some ways some of those projects and people have perhaps been allowed to be at the edges of an organisation and engage in practices, which maybe if we bring those closer into the middle of organisations who have views on accountability, ethics, licensure, a whole bunch of those things, it perhaps is helpful that design's a little bit more visible and maybe we can start to ask different questions about it um about the sort of ethics of it of the um the presence of it and in what ways are we working um i want to i think close the conversation by asking us each to contribute uh, a reading a podcast a poem something that you'd sort of like to gift the listeners of the podcast, something that they can read, engage with, watch, um, that helps them deepen their questions or maybe their practice in this area. Um, I'm going to put us on the spot, but if there's, if you want to take some time to think about this, we can add it to the show notes, um, as well as places that you can read, you know, Tad's fabulous article, Morgan's work and Rachel's work. Um, Does anyone have something that, that comes to mind for them? Yeah, so I'll, um, and I can send it to you, Ka, to link. It's called A Delicate Activism, A Radical Approach to Change, and it's by Alan Kaplan and Sue Davidoff, and it was introduced to me by a very dear mentor um, quite a few years back, and it's, I, I think, foundational reading for anyone doing any sort of activism in any sort of industry and being self-reflexive in, in how we do it and the importance of self-reflection. So that would be mine. Thanks, Morgan. How about you, Ted? Does anything come to mind? I'm going to have to get back to you. I'm sorry. I'm like thinking about the fact that my child is uh, hungry and I haven't made dinner for him yet, to be honest. <laughs> so I hear you. Yeah. at the moment. I apologize. No. Come as you are. Uh, Rachel, how about yourself? I think um, I'll, I'll add some, some uh, specificity to this, but I, I'll say something maybe a little more general in that 
if there is an opportunity to learn about these practices and you have a curiosity about them. I mean, there's a, there's a, a bevy of books that I could definitely recommend. Um, some that are a little more academic, some that are just much more approachable. Um, the thing that for me that has been most helpful and most intriguing have been these opportunities to, uh, to, to learn something and then have deep conversation about it. And there's a, there's, you know, an example of that, 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 you know, because we're all virtual right now, or for the most part, still, um, I've been able to really take part in some of those things. Um, and there's, there's one in particular that I just started today with, uh, with, with Bessel van der Kolk, um, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score. Again, not the only book about trauma, but, but one that is, that is often highly referenced. And what I enjoyed about it the most was, this opportunity to really be like live and in community with 750 other people from around the world. So when people were introducing themselves, the questions that were just flooded in the chat, I mean, there's, there's a richness of, of, of just being able to take in what people are thinking about um, in this moment and how it might relate to whether they're formally in practice or a clinician. There, there were a lot of people who weren't uh, clinicians or by, by profession. And I, so I, I learn a lot just being with people um, mm-hmm. in that kind of experience. So I would, I would strongly encourage those types of engagements for sure. Mm-hmm. So in closing, I just want to say, Morgan, Rachel, Ted, I'm so appreciative for the chance to have a conversation with you all and for the things that you're all helping us to think about, the questions you're helping us to ask and maybe start to answer. Um, and really looking forward to sharing with this audience some of the ways in which they can engage with your work and with others' work too. So it's been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pushing Practice on This Is HCD. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the This Is HCD network, feel free to visit thisishcd.com. You can sign up to the community newsletter, learn about upcoming online community gatherings, or join the Slack channel where you can connect with thousands of other human-centered design practitioners around the world. Thank you for listening and see you next time.